Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 14. Please follow along. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not, let, do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord and bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This is the word of God. And you can be seated. Before we actually dig into this text, I want to show you an ad. This ad uh, was on television, I don't know, three, four months. Maybe it's still on TV. I'm not totally sure. Why do we work so hard? For what? For this? For stuff? Other countries, they work, they stroll home, they stop by the cafe, they take August off. Off. Why aren't you like that? Why aren't we like that? Because we're crazy, driven, hard-working believers, that's why. Those other countries think we're nuts. Whatever. Were the Wright brothers insane? Bill Gates, Les Paul, Ali. Were we nuts when we pointed to the moon? That's right. We went up there, you know what we got? Bored. So we left. Got a car up there, left the keys in it. Do you know why? Because we're the only ones going back up there, that's why. But I digress. It's pretty simple. You work hard, you create your own luck, and you gotta believe anything is possible. As for all the stuff, that's the upside of only taking two weeks off in August. Nespa? USA, USA. <laughs> okay, so there, like, we can probably agree it's all sorts of problematic things about that ad, right? And we could spend a lot. Had, who, who had never seen that ad before? Oh, okay, all right. Um, I just, yeah, it's just, I love it for its just blatant everythingness of, about it. Nothing subtle about the ad. Um, but here, here's what I would like us to pay attention to for the sake of our, our passage this morning. Um, a person can only talk like uh, this guy in the ad if they understand their setting to be, uh, to be their home. And not only to be their home, but to be a place where they have, have power and influence. There, there's nobody else who can talk that way. Unless the setting you're in is your home and you have power in that setting, none of that makes sense. Not in any sort of even semi-believable kind of way, right? You have to believe that th- this is mine. I'm entitled to this. This is my place. This is my stuff. This is my home. I have power and agency in this place. It's the only way that an ad like that can make any sense, can in any way, other than just being laughable, uh, can in any way get us to pay attention to what we are trying, they're, they're, they're trying to sell uh, to us. Ads like this, and, and maybe more more ads are, are a little bit more subtle than this, but, but ads like this one are trying to convince us that this world is our own, that this country is our own, that this, this city is our own. Ads like this work to convince us that if we only, in the language of the Bible, conform to the pattern of this world, then we will experience the best that this world has to offer. It's like Satan did with Jesus in the wilderness. We hear the voice tempting us to believe that we are entitled to all of this, except the month of August off, apparently. We're not entitled to that. 
But to all of this, this, this can be ours. But of course, many of you look at that Cadillac ad and you, you see right through its lies. And your experience of this life makes it so that you're almost immune to, to some of those lies. Some of you know that regardless of how hard you work, how little time off you take, how much of your own sweat, blood, and tears you put into your career, some of you know that you will never lay claim to the privileges of race and history and gender that go unacknowledged in an ad like this. Uh, Some of you recognize the version of family that's on display in this ad. Parents and children passing each other in a blur, spouses walking by, each in their own worlds. You recognize this version of family because it matches your own, living in a hurry, insulated from others in your family. You know the patterns of your own broken and scattered families. And then there maybe are a few of us this morning who could actually place ourselves in that man's shoes. We too are good at winning the American dream. We have accumulated the stuff and the status, but we know very, very well that a cost has been paid. A cost has been paid in our own soul, and a cost has been paid by those whose backs have provided our stepping stones. And again, this ad is not particularly subtle, but I think it's a reminder of why Advent is so important, of why you and I need this Advent season. Because we need reminders that this world, this nation, this city are not our home. Jesus, God's Messiah, has lived. He's been crucified for our atonement. He's risen victoriously over sin, death, and evil. And so we rejoice in what God has done. And at the very same time, we wait. We wait for our Messiah to return in his glory. We wait for the finality of God's victory to be manifest for all eternity. We live in between. In between Jesus' ascension to glory and his return, where his will will be perfectly enacted on earth as it even now is in heaven. Advent reminds us that we are an in-between people awaiting people. And one of the ways that the Bible helps us live as Advent people, as in-between people, is through the stories of God's people in exile. Turn to your neighbor and say, we live in exile. The story of the Bible can be summarized relatively briefly in God coming to Abraham and Sarah and saying, through you I will bless the entire world. The family grows and is led into Egypt where they become captives. After hundreds of years, God sends his servant Moses to liberate the people from Egypt, leading them through an exodus and to the promised land. In the promised land, the people become jealous of the nations around them, and they choose to elect kings over them to give themselves legitimacy. And these kings lead them to injustice and idolatry. And so God leads them into exile. And though eventually they returned to their land, by the time we reach Jesus, these are an occupied people. These are a people under house arrest. They are not in exile in another land. They are in exile in their own land. First the Greeks, and now in Jesus' day, the Romans. And then Jesus ascends and commissions this new church, this ecclesia, this gathered body of eclectic people from all over the Roman Empire, and there is no homeland for them. There is no promised land for this new church. There are diverse people who experience the marginalization and even the persecution that Jesus himself experienced and promised that his church too would experience The story of the scriptures gives us these different metaphors and images to to grasp onto. And many of us, formed and shaped by the American narrative, will lean toward the story of the Exodus and the Promised Land. It aligns with the stories our nation tells us about what is possible and what we can have and where security lies. And these are important stories because we have been rescued and there is a promised land for us one day that will be brought to earth when Jesus returns. And yet, I would suggest that the exile is an incredibly important image and metaphor for those of us who are Christians in between Jesus' ascension and his return. Are you with me so far? 
The exile is an important image for us and one that I want to spend a few minutes thinking about today. There is no Christian land for you and I to return to, and we shouldn't expect that. Jesus said that we are to be in the world, but not of this world. Jesus promised that until he returns, we will experience the disdain and even the hatred at times of the world in which we find ourselves as he himself experienced. In other words, though we are citizens of the kingdom of God, and though we have a home that Jesus is even now preparing for us in this life, in this country, and in this city, we should expect to live as exiles. Now, our experience is certainly not the same as the Babylonian exiles. We need to avoid reading our experience back into the scriptures But with that cautionary note, we we need to also be willing to see the difficult, confusing, and even painful ways that our allegiance to King Jesus creates a similarity with those Babylonian exiles. Recognizing our exile is not only necessary for us as individual Christians, it's also very important as a church that we recognize our place in exile. If we don't, if we think that we already live in the promised land, or if that if we just work a little bit harder, we can attain the promises of that land, if we gloss over the reality of our exile, then we will be compromised. And we will become complicit in the way our world works. We will exist not as an alternative community pointing to God's coming kingdom, listen, but we will exist as religious justification for this nation's warped priorities. We'll exist as a spiritual medication that allows us to maintain functionality within an unjust and an idolatrous city. Recognizing and accepting the ways you and I are like the Babylonian exiles opens up before us the alternative and the life-giving way of Jesus in some very practical and very specific ways. Now, for generations before Babylon actually conquered Judah, uh, the nation of Israel had been threatened by Assyria, by the empire Assyria. And finally, Assyria was conquered by Babylon, but just a few years later, Babylon, instead of Assyria, conquered Judah and sent the people into exile. After years of living under the threat of occupation, the people are finally sent into a foreign land. And it's to this people to this conquered, captured, exiled people that Jeremiah writes the letter we read earlier. Jeremiah, the prophet, had been left behind in Jerusalem with some of the unskilled laborers, some of the poorer citizens of the city. Yet word had reached him back in Jerusalem about the false prophets who'd been carried into exile who were telling the exiles that it was going to be okay that they would return home any day now. The word had reached Jeremiah of their false prophecies. And so from these circumstances, God has his prophet write a letter to his exiled people. And in this letter are instructions for how to live faithfully as God's people while in exile. And again, our circumstances are different. But as Advent people, we should pay attention to God's instructions for his exiles. I think they might be instructions for us as well. And so I want to suggest for us this morning four instructions. Four instructions for faithfulness and flourishing in exile. Four instructions for how you and I and how this church can live faithfully and flourishing lives even in exile. The first one is this. Identify the lies and tune them out. Uh, Jeremiah is not subtle about this. Uh, Just like the ad we saw is not particularly subtle, Jeremiah is not subtle about this instruction at all. In verses 8 and 9 we read, Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, 
declares the Lord. Now, these are Jewish so-called prophets who were telling the exiles, again, it's going to be okay. You'll return home any day now. You'll have what you lost. You'll get back to how things were. The exile would be short in their telling. These were the lies that Jeremiah was identifying, but history tells us as well that the exiles had to contend with the lies of the Babylonian culture in which they found themselves. These were lies about wealth, about status, about culture, about religion. These were lies that began to undermine the very foundations of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which formed their identity. From all sides, the exiles were being lied to. When you and I begin to understand the exilic nature of our lives as Christians, we can no longer assume the neutrality of the ideologies and values of our culture. Say it a little bit differently. Once we understand that we're exiles in this place, we can't assume that the values and ideologies that we hear are neutral. We begin to understand and see that every single day we are subject to a barrage of lies. We're lied to about the stuff that we need in order to live a content life. Because we believe this lie, the average American is over $7,000 in has over $7,000 of credit card debt. We believe these lies. We're lied to about the sacredness of the American values of extravagant comfort, of paranoid safety, and of the pursuit of personal happiness that blinds us to the plight of our own neighbors. We're lied to about the relative significance of different careers. Some of us make more money than we know what to do with, and others, like some of our very own CPS teachers, have to get a second job in order to make ends meet. And what's important for us to see about these lies is that they are, they are, they are, they are dynamic lies. This is what I mean. It's not just that this, this land of exile wants us to just believe a few things that are different from what God wants us to believe. These are dynamic Lies. The purpose of them is to turn us farther and farther away from God. Farther and farther away from bearing God's image accurately in this world. The purpose of these lies is to make us less fully human and to make us less able and interested in working with God for his world and for his people. Let me give you one Really plain, pretty weird example of this. I think it's weird. Maybe you don't think it's weird. Uh, last month, I, I bumped into an article on this uh, CNBC website entitled, Should You Have Sex with Robots? This was, this was not on The Onion. This was on CNBC. So, you, like, I would think it'd be a really short article, Right? Like, no, exclamation point. <laughs> What's wrong with you, question mark? But it, no, it's like a full article. So let me just let me read a, a portion of it to you. Sex robots are becoming a reality with companies rushing to get them to market. For example, a New Jersey-based true companion has been designing what it claims is the world's first sex robot called Roxy. Of course it is. At the same time, smartphone apps called chatbots have taken off, particularly in Asia. Choice is one such service. It is software designed by Microsoft for the Chinese market that enables people to type and receive answers to questions for hours on end. This proliferation of machines in intimate roles is something that should, in fact, be welcomed, however, according to one expert. Quote, we talk about the biggest killers in our society being things like heart disease. I wonder if one of the greatest killers of our age is loneliness. Now machines can be a conduit toward not being so alone, towards getting some sort of emotional response, 
even if it's from a machine. According to Nell Watson, a futurist at the Singularity University in Silicon Valley, which, of course, that's what it's called. <laughs> uh, okay, we're not going to take a poll. My assumption is most of us, like, no, I'm not down with having sex with robots. That's my guess, most of us. If not, let's talk after the service. Because it seems like, again, it seems blatant, right? But let's think about, like, the thousands of lies that had to be believed in order to get to the question of, do you have sex with a robot? Right? Like, that doesn't pop out of nowhere, right? There's a thousand, there's a million things that had to be believed first in order for this to even be like, yeah, you know what we should talk about? Like, you know what we should hold a conference about? And so, yeah, maybe none of us this morning would say, like, I think that's a good idea. But how about the, the thousands of other little lies that would be believed to get even close to this question? How many of, of those lies have we absorbed unthinkingly? Because we have to think about the lies we're told regularly about sex, about technology, about community, about human desire. All of these lies have to be believed first. And my assumption is, if you're like me, that these are lies that tend to go down a little easier. How many of them have we absorbed unthinkingly? In what ways, for example, have the lies told to us by this land been forming us away from God's image? How have we absorbed the dehumanizing ideas about sex as transactional, as compartmentalized, as biologically required, as utterly individualistic? We could go on with endless examples just from this one story or from that ad we saw Earlier, but, but the reason Jeremiah has to be so blunt about this has to do with the deforming, dehumanizing nature of these lies. By listening to the prophet's lies, by listening to the Babylonian lies, the people were being turned away from their God and God's plans to redeem them. So Jeremiah says, don't listen to them. Don't let them deceive you. So there's two things here. There's identifying the lies, and then there's tuning them out. I think they're both difficult. I wonder, in what ways do you identify the ways that our culture lies to you? And then how do you choose to tune them out? What does that look like for you? You can think about the media that we interact with regularly. And I know, like, I'm stepping into, like, fundamentalist-sounding territory right now. Not telling anybody not watch movies or anything like that. Do you think about what you watch? People from Europe who visit America and watch movies in our theaters are blown away by how violent our movies are. It's normal for us. At what what age is it okay to expose our children to the violence that's normal in our media? What about our news media? Friends of mine who work in news media tell the ways in which what stories are chosen to be told begin to lie to us about how our city works. How are you interacting with the lies our culture tells to you? About the lies our culture tells to you about who you are. About where your worth comes from. About how valuable you are or are not. Would you you ever think of just turning off your television for a month? Would that ever be an option? Would there be an option to just say, we're not going to have computers on at home after dinner time? By the way, these are not things I've ever done, so I'm not like... (laughs) Just thinking out loud with you right now. What what, what does it look like? What does it look like to go to see a film and say, I want to pay attention 
to this. I want to enjoy it for the art that it is and the creative thing that it is, but I also want to pay attention to the assumptions that are underlying how this story is told. Jeremiah says we have to identify the lies. We've got to find ways to tune them out. For some of us, it means like, no, I just, I just can't. I can't. I'm too susceptible, so I just can't. And maybe for others of us, it's I'm going to have to engage this very, very carefully and very critically in order to understand the stories that are being told to me about this. So if you have questions about this, don't ask me. Go ask Dawn Washington after the service because she has a master's degree in this kind of media sort of stuff, so she can say more intelligent things to you about this. That's the first thing. Identify the lies and tune them out. Second, to flourish uh, faithfully in exile, cultivate life-giving structures. Verses 5 and 6, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. There's an implicit statement in this. It would go something like this. Don't expect the dominant culture to nourish your identity as God's people. Do not expect the exilic land you live in to nourish your identity as the people of God. We don't live in the promised land. And so we have to build alternative structures and systems within our exilic circumstances. And so Jeremiah says, build houses and settle down. He's saying, put down deep roots. He says, plant gardens and eat what they produce. I think contextually you could make the case that he's saying, create healthy economies. He says, marry and have sons and daughters. Nourish and support families. If we look at this clearly, I would say that these three things that Jeremiah is identifying as necessary for flourishing in exile actually go uh, kind of strike at the heart of how our country thinks about itself. Put down deep roots. Is that the American way of life? Is that how we do it? No, like, we just move. We just go. Tabitha and Tommy, I'm not talking about you guys. <laughs> Prayerfully discerned, had your community involved. <laughs> but you know what I mean, right? Like, and I'm susceptible to this too. But, but, but what's, what's held up as a value? Being transient. Being able to move with the drop of the hat. Getting a promotion somewhere. And so uprooting your family and going for that promotion. Or it's just too cold in Chicago. So let me move somewhere that's nicer. It's warmer. And Jeremiah says, you'll never flourish in exile if you're not deeply rooted in this place. If, if you don't live as though you will be here for the rest of your life, even if you're not here for the rest of your life. Maybe God doesn't then indeed send you like Tommy and Tabitha, but you, until that moment, you live as though you'll be here for the rest of your life, deeply rooted in a particular place. Just create healthy economies. We think about gardens as just like, oh, that's a fun hobby to do. But like, no, you got to eat, right? Like you got to have a way, like, you, like you're, you're in a land now where you don't know if people are going to watch out for you, so plant gardens, eat what they, eat, eat the fruit, eat the produce that they, that they give you. Create alternative economies. Now, this is where Pastor Michelle will be better at this because she started like, quoting Karl Marx and stuff like that, and that's over, a little over my head. But here's what I, here's what I do know. I do know that, that kind of the way uh, employment and careers work in our country is that uh, you, you tend to want to get a job with like, a really large corporation who has a lot of resources, I, I listen to how friends who are in business school talk and how they get recruited and how these massive corporations kind of come in and recruit people like that. That's sort of, and so alternatively, the vision is to start your own business, right? Like entrepreneurship, that's a really big thing. But what's the dream? What's the goal of being an entrepreneur? To, to grow it to a certain size, right? And then do what? Sell it to one of those corporations, right? So who owns Beats by Dre now? Apple, right? So this is, what, this is what happens, right? This is sort of how our economy works. And many of you are called to be in that place, to work in those massive corporations, to affect a, a, the, the, the literal presence of God in those places. And we love that you're there. But one of the things that I loved about what Q did during Black Friday and in inviting these black-owned businesses to come together is that that's not happening anywhere else, right? Like, who's doing that? That's not how the American economy works, 
this is how Christian people think. We think, what's missing in this community? What industry is missing here? Well, what, 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 what would happen to, to a man who was sent away to prison and then came back to this community and now has this on? What kind of job would that man get? What sort of opportunity for advancement would exist for him? Oh, it doesn't exist? We better create that. Oh, we, we need to build that. We need to think about how that could work in this place. So I'm the... Some of you really smart business kind of people, I need you to get on that project, okay? It's one of the massive gaping holes in our community on the south side is employment. Huge hole. We can educate folks, we can encourage folks, but if there's nowhere to work, there's nowhere to have meaningful, dignified labor, then what? Then the alternative economy is your only option. So I need, I need, I'm not even joking about this. I need some of y'all to get your, put your heads together. I need like Q, you know, and Anthony, and, 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 and I need y'all to kind of like start thinking like, how, how does our church get behind that? How, how do we be deeply rooted in this place and begin to foster and nurture a kind of local economic development that would help our neighbors flourish? Okay? This is what it looks like to flourish faithfully in exile. And then, and then, Jeremiah says, nourish family. Nourish family. Now, as Christians, uh, we understand that we think about family different than our surrounding culture does. We live in a culture that's kind of like, has two extremes of how we think about family. On the one hand, like, until you're a certain age, like, the idea of family, we kind of talk about it sort of negatively, like, Oh, we lost our friend to marriage, or I never want to do, you know, I never, I want to be independent, or, you know, I've told you this before, Maggie, at her work, they often host bachelorette parties, and like the language is always like, oh, the ball and chain, and this is my last hurrah, right? So, and then on the other side, right, is this infatuation with family and marriage. Like, once a certain age threshold, I'm not sure what it is, 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 is passed, then it's like a, 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 a switch is flipped, and now I just, I, in order to be fully human, in order for my existence to be valued and justified, now I need to be married and, and have kids. And as Christians, that just, nope, like we're not, nope, we, we don't exist in that weird binary. Because we belong to the family of God. And the Bible tells us that we've been adopted as children of God by Christ Jesus. So that means our definition of family is different. That means that we don't do like just the husband, wife, 2.5, kids, dog, you know, whatever the thing is, right? Like we, no, it's, it's more complicated for Christians than that. Who's in our family? Married people, single people, divorced people, engaged people, old people, young people. This is what family looks like to us. Who's gathering around our tables? What family systems are we nurturing? How do we make sure that every single pe- person in this community says, yes, I belong to family here? Jeremiah says, you've got to nourish and nurture those kinds of family structures. It will not just happen to you in this place of exile. This land will work to pull you apart, will work to, to isolate you and to make you lonely and to segregate you with people who are just like you. It's one of the most powerful things Aaron Griffin said on the panel of single and married folks last year. He said, I, I can't just hang out with single people. I, I got to go, I got to hang out with my married friends and like, Sit at their table and eat with them and, and vice versa. This is what the church does. This is what family in the kingdom of God is like. Am I, are you with me? Are you, okay, okay, let's keep going. Number three, seek the good of the city. The third instruction for living faithfully and flourishing in exile. Seek the good of the city. This is really important because things kind of take a turn here. If we stop at points one and two, we might begin to envision a kind of almost like a, a separate and segregated civilization. It's what Pastor Michelle said earlier this morning. When we say a city within a city, we're not talking about like our own holy huddle with high walls and boundaries. We're being sent from this place. So we need to see this very clearly. Also, Jeremiah says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, the order here, I think, is very important. Seeking the good of the city comes after the command to build life-giving structures. And this matters because this city, despite Chicago's charms and glittering promises, 
like every other city, is symbolic of humanity's sinfulness of God. What is a city but a collection of sinful individuals and their broken structures and systems? So in order to seek the good of the city, God's people must be deeply rooted in communities and structures that inoculate them to the city's idolatries and injustices. Without this inoculation, you and I will always default into one of two directions. We will either erect walls to protect ourselves from the city, or or we will become enchanted with the city. And it will be impossible to differentiate us from anyone else. This is not what the Babylonian exiles are called to. They're neither to assimilate, and they're, neither, and they're not to isolate either. They're not to assimilate, and they are not to isolate themselves. They, like us, were called to be a light on a hill in the midst of this foreign city. On the one hand, this command to seek the good of the city must have sounded impossible to the exiles. After all, Babylon had captured their city, had ruined their city, had sent them into exile, had destroyed their temple, had completely upended their worlds. But in this command is also a note of hope. Because in this place of exile, the Jewish community was beginning to wonder about God's faithfulness. With their land and their temple gone, it was hard for them to imagine that God was good, that God was for them, that God was still in control. And yet Jeremiah reminds him in this verse that it's God who carried them into exile. In other words, even in this foreign land, surrounded by their captors, God was still sovereign and had not forgotten his people. I hope that's a little bit of good news to somebody this morning. That even in this place of exile, even if your life is full of uncertainty and questions right now and unknown, God is still God in your life. This truth is what allows us to seek the good of the city, even when that city wishes to do us harm. A city like Chicago that's built on segregation, racism, exploitation of all kinds. In this city, we are able to work for the good of our neighbors, whether or not they confess our God. Because we know that our God rules and reigns even here. Amen? Amen. Lastly, we nurture hope for God's future. The last part of our passage might have sounded a little bit familiar to some of you. I have plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you hope in the future. We quote these verses to each other. But consider how they would have sounded to those Babylonian exiles. God promises to return them to their homeland. Their exile will end. Yay, great news. When? 70 years from now, you'll all be dead. (laughs) Nobody who hears this promise will be alive to see God's rescue. They will be buried far from their foremothers and forefathers. They will die in exile. So be careful next time you quote that passage a little too glibly. You might be saying something unintended to somebody. Within God's promise of a future hope is a requirement for us to submit to God's timing and to God's plan. If we are to hang on to God's hope, we must also submit to his timing and to his plan. And this submission is why we have to nurture hope for God's future. We shouldn't expect that that hope just happens to us. As Advent people, as in-between people, we trust God for his return and his redemption. But we don't know when. We don't know when. Tomorrow, 70 years from now, generations from now, we don't know when. And so we must nurture hope. We must feed hope. We must choose hope. We must fight for hope. We must encourage hope in one another. Have you ever had somebody encourage hope in you? When you had no hope, when you were up against the wall and somebody who you loved, who you trusted, came and nurtured hope in you so that at the end of that conversation, you had at least a little bit of hope. This is what we do with one another. We nurture hope. The passage says in verse 13, you will seek me and find me when? 
When you do what? When you seek me with all your heart. This is what's required to nurture hope in a land of exile. It won't just happen to you. We seek God with all of our hearts. We nurture hope in one another, and we begin to experience it in our lives. How? We nurture hope by learning the disciplines and the rhythms and the mysteries of prayer. We immerse ourselves in God's word, choosing to rise early in the day for time meditating in the scriptures or for the night owls, turning to the Bible as we head to bed, letting God's word be the last thing in our mind as we fall asleep. We get to know Christian authors, living and dead, who will challenge our minds and encourage our hearts. We practice Can I just stop on that one for a second? Because you all know I love to read. What if you read just one thoughtful, helpful Christian book every year? Just one. Just one. If you've got another 10 years in front of you, 20 years in front of you, 50 years in front of you, just think about how your heart and mind would be formed theologically away from this land of exile into the truth of our God. Let me know if you need any recommendations. Where was I? We practice Sabbath. How do we nurture hope? We practice Sabbath as God's gift to us. We slow down on Sundays, making time to worship, to serve, to hang out, to rest. We learn the rhythms of feasting and fasting throughout the year. Marking God's time by living into seasons of repentance and seasons of joyful celebration, regardless of what's happening around us. We nurture hope. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that by now there's a, a kind of vision that's coming to you in your mind as we hear these instructions for faithfulness and flourishing in exile. I hope you're beginning to imagine what your life may look like in this place and what the life of our church may look like in this place. Jeremiah is describing a community that identifies and tunes out the destructive and dehumanizing lies told to us by our culture. He is identifying a community that has invested creatively in building structures that will nourish life within this violent and deadly world. He's identifying a community that is not trapped within the structures we build, but is freed by them to love this world extravagantly. A community that is unable to disregard anyone, our enemies, the people our world marginalizes. We cannot disregard anybody. Jeremiah is envisioning a community that nurtures a deep and abiding hope that encourages one another on to this hope. This is not hope as a spiritual painkiller. This is hope as evidence of God's future. This is hope that can see a baby born into poverty, a baby forced into exile. This is a hope that can see that baby and see the Messiah of God. This is a hope that can see a rabbi wandering the Galilean wilderness, speaking in strange parables, upending the norms of religious respectability, and see in this rabbi the kingdom of heaven breaking into this world. This is a hope that gazes upon Jesus hanging from that tree. He is deserted. He is betrayed. He is abandoned. He is discredited. He is humiliated. But this hope, allows us to see hanging on that tree God's salvation for the world and for us. This hope can see an end to our exile. But this hope can also see that God's salvation is available to us even in exile. New Community Covenant Church, this is who we are called In the middle of our own forms of exile, we're called to be a faithful and flourishing and hopeful people. 
in a city that lies to us endlessly. We have to build life-giving structures that allow us to courageously and creatively seek the good of a city that will not always return the favor. This is why in 2016 we're asking everybody who calls new community their church home to find ways to be regularly present to our community here in Bronzeville. Regardless of where you work, regardless of where you live and what God has called you to in those places, if new community is your church home, 2016 we're asking that you find regular ways to be present to what God is doing in this specific place. We talked about this last week with our strategic plan. This means that we're going to need some of you to help find and prepare a ministry center here in the neighborhood, a center that will allow us to have a greater reach with our ministry partners as we seek the good of Bronzeville. We're going to need some of you to become fundraisers, to raise money for our new director of cause ministries. This new staff position is going to Help us be more organized and consistent and effective as we pursue the cause of Jesus in some very practical, justice-oriented ways in this neighborhood. And apparently, I guess, uh, that's not part of the story, we need some people to start figuring out how to like, do economic development as well. So I'm just going to say that out loud. We need all of you, as the year goes on, to discern your spiritual gifts your personal experiences, your cultural strengths, your vocational networks, and how you can bring all of these to bear here in Bronzeville as we seek the flourishing of our neighborhood. Amen? Uh, So this is how we're going to end our service. If you're a member of New Community Covenant Church, you've already said yes to the 2016 strategic plan. You've already said yes about these priorities of living this way as this kind of people in this place. You voted. You said yes, you're in. This morning, though, we want to actually kind of make that public and commission you as members of this church to lead us in 2016. This is not meant to be an excluding thing. Like those of you who are not members don't get to be a part of that. No, no, no. Uh, We want you very much to be a part of this. But in new community, we take membership very seriously, and our members listen to God together and discern the voice of God together about how God is leading us. So it's very important that we identify their commitment and follow their lead in 2016. My hope is those of you who are not members as you hear this are caught up in this vision and want to be uh, an integral part of it as well. So members, I didn't give you a heads up on this, but uh, if you could just stand where you are, please. If you've gone through the membership process and been affirmed as a member of our church, uh, I'm going to issue you a challenge. I have one question for you that you will answer by saying, I do, and then I'm going to pray for you. Because the, the vision of being the people of God in this place and in these kinds of ways cannot be done by individuals. Amen? It can only, only, only be done by a community of people who have been knit together by God. Hear God's word of call and promise. Go into all the world and proclaim the good news to the whole creation. And then again, do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. With these words, Jesus sent his followers on a mission to the whole world. We are a part of that mission still 2,000 years later and half a world away. We know the joyful obligation and the solemn privilege of being called to live out this commission. We are given opportunity to serve our world in Christ's name and work together to introduce people and nations to our Lord and Savior. Friends in Christ, we give thanks to God for calling you as a church to mission involvement and for making it possible for you to see this opportunity and to say yes to this service. Just pause there. If you're not a a member of our church, when our members vote on our budget and our strategic plan, they are saying yes to seeing that plan enacted in the coming year. You have heard the word of God. 
you know the high calling and the great honor of going out in God's service. I'm going to ask you the question now. With the power of the Holy Spirit, do you promise to serve God by serving people? Working in cooperation with these other members and the church at large as the body of Christ in such a way as to promote God's glory and to introduce others to Jesus by your words, by your work, and by your worship. Okay, you're going to say, I do. (laughs) With the power of the Holy Spirit, do you promise to serve God by serving people in cooperation with these members and this church at large as the body of Christ in such a way as to promote God's glory and to introduce others to Jesus by your words, your work, and your worship? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, who is God in the promised land and God in exile. Who is God in Babylon and God in Chicago. Who is God in our homes and in our workplaces. God, we ask you now to fill these members again with your Holy Spirit to ready them for this mission. Through the touch of their hands and the labor of their backs through the working of their minds and the words of their mouths, do your work of communicating good news and extending the kingdom. In this time, may they grow in grace and in their knowledge of you. May they work well together as a team of friends in Christ. May they effectively and faithfully serve others in your name. May they be used in introducing people to Jesus. May they give glory to you by their actions. And I would add, may you keep them faithful. May you allow them to flourish in this place of exile. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward to receive our offering this morning. you're not a member in our church and you want to learn more about membership, we have a class coming up in February. We'd love for you to be a part of a part of that and to learn more about the responsibilities and duties and challenges of being a member in that new community. So we'll worship a little more in just a second, but let's pray now for our tithes and offerings. God, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for the material provision for our church and the ways in which that Uh, has pushed through us and into your kingdom work in this community and around the world even, God. We're we're thankful to you for that. Help us to continue to be a faithful... Uh, Here's what I'm going to ask, God, that you would please um, increase our generosity in those places where we're currently feeling stingy. Um, And especially this time of year as it relates to the time that's available. Would you allow us to be generous with ourselves and our times so that those who are lonely and those who are in a particular need would be met by you through our simple availability. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.